Happy December, everyone. It's your buddy, Luke. Got a hot one this week, so let's dive right in. Actually, no. First, some housekeeping. This little intro that I just recorded, beads, sleds. It's winter, so we're sledding. We sled quickly downhill and into the interview. And you know, I get a little worked up, a little heated anyways. So it would be very, very jarring if I were to try to cut in and do anything once I get going. You can't stop that Irish Slavic fire once it gets stoked, there's not a moment to cut in and do any uh, do any of the housekeeping, pay any of the bills. So let's do it at the top real quick. First of all, big, big thank you to Brennan Pointer and Speak Studios in downtown Spokane. They recorded the interview and did the edit and mix. If you're in the podcast game or you want to be, they got a beautiful facility, socially distanced. It's a really, really nice experience. So there's a link in the bio. Go check it out. Speak Studios. Secondly... And I will say up front, this is the part I am not looking forward to because this goes against every fiber of my being. But I really like making range and I like doing the newsletter, the podcast, the newsletter. Hopefully you like that I've done it. If you're listening to this podcast, it means you've probably gotten through the first boss of the newsletter and you liked it enough to keep going. We're trying to create a sustainable place for people who love Spokane and want to make it better to come and talk about how we might do that and then provide, you know, tangible ways that we can all sort of work toward that future together. This is the part I'm going to hate. It would be very, very cool since you are sort of a super user. If you're listening to this podcast, you're kind of a range super user. If you haven't already, would you consider becoming a member of the community? It's pretty easy. You just go to rangemedia.co or you click on the subscribe button in the show notes or the subscribe button in the newsletter. We have strategically placed multiple opportunities for you to give us money. It's 10 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a year. If you want to pay the whole thing, that's cool. It's very cool. A lot of people seem to do it. It's wild. A lot of people are saying it. I've got, I never bothered getting a good Trump accent and now I don't have to worry about it. It's nice. I would very much like for this little concern to be more than just me soon. This partnership with Speak Studios is one of the first steps toward doing that, but I'd like to be able to hire freelancers. I'd like to be able to maybe hire staffers one day so that it's not just me smashing my fingers into a keyboard or screaming into a microphone, but actually a a news gathering operation with a purpose, with a mission to make our area, this area that we all love better. So yeah, that's the pitch, y'all. Rangemedia.co. Fund them if you got them. Ooh, there we go. All right. I'm proud of me. I'm proud of you. Let's get on with the show. I sat down right before Thanksgiving to talk with former city council president and current public policy gadfly, Ben Stuckert. We talked about two topics he's worked on a lot lately, health policy and housing policy. Now, the two have deep, inextricable connections, but there's enough to unpack in each that I'm going to cut this one up and try one of my patented two-parters, which everyone loves so much. Part one is public health. The firing of Bob Lutz is more than a black eye on our city. It's a, uh, I'm going to spin an extended metaphor here. It's a gangrenous wound showing the rot at the heart of a public health administrative system that was fundamentally flawed the moment it was enacted by Washington State in 1967, putting non-professional, non-specialist elected county officials in sole charge of administering their jurisdiction's public health. Now, those jurisdictions could you know, create their own bylaws to sort of administer it however they wanted, but the ultimate initiation process and governance creation was up to each individual county. We'll get into all of that in the interview with Ben, but I just want to underscore something here. Spokane County chose to make basically every single position on the health board, either an elected official or somebody who's beholden to an elected official. So 75% of the 12 members on the board are elected officials, county commissioners, Spokane city councilmen, Valley city council people, uh, and an at-large elected official from small towns in the county. And then three appointees appointed at the discretion of the county commission. Now compare that with the State Board of Health, which is only eight people. Not sure why our county needs 50% more board members than the state itself. But every single one of them is some sort of public health professional who works in health or and or sanitation for a municipality, Native American tribe, or other governing body around the state. And then two consumers of health, like literally just normal people who uh, can weigh in on, you know, the experience of being under public health policy, right? So six professionals, including the secretary of the Department of Health himself, and two citizens who can speak to the impact firsthand, right? Well, and here I am. I'm already second-guessing my gangrenous wound metaphor uh, because it doesn't actually go that far, except to say that 
you can't really do it. You can't fix gangrene. You just got to hack off the limb or you got to cut out the illness. You got to cut out the sickness. You can't patch it back together. You can't reform it away. And that is a hundred percent where we're at with our local public health board. As long as there are a majority, I would say any, but certainly as long as there's a majority, a super majority of elected officials who have final sway over public health policy decisions and are the ultimate bosses and arbiters of the behavior of our health officer, it is only a matter of time, only a matter of when, not if, the trained professional opinion of the health officer comes into conflict with an elected official's constituents, his special interests, the people that got him elected, or the power that got him elected. And you end up with something like Dr. Bob Lutz getting run out of town on a rail because he didn't want to open up fast enough. And Lutz himself was powerless to do anything about it. The professional public health community in Spokane was powerless to do anything about it. They, you know, picketed their little fannies off and it didn't do anything. It did not matter one bit because there wasn't a single representative of public health on the public health board. So anyway, we talked to Ben about all of those things. Dr. Lutz is not coming back, barring a miracle. And actually not even really bar. There's like literally zero chance that he's going to come back, but we can prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. And that's what we talked to him about. Both local and state efforts that are just now beginning to form and local coalitions, one of which he's a part of, that are forming to make sure that... We can all learn from the tragic tale of Dr. Bob Lutz and the tragic tale of the people of Spokane County. Uh, Let's not put all of the tragedy on one man. It is all of our shared tragedy. We'll be talking about that and what we can possibly do about it with Ben Stuckert right after this. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 20, Tis the Times Plague When Madmen Lead the Blind. Ben Stucker, thanks for coming on range, man. Absolutely. Good to see you, Luke. Uh, we wanted to talk to you about a couple different things, but let's start with facts with a pH. So, can we just talk about. Uh, P-H-A-C-T-S, the new, I guess, coalition. So tell me yeah, what it is. Public, public Health Action Coalition Teams of Spokane. Facts. It's kind of fitting. Uh, came out of, uh, I was fairly outraged when I heard uh, Dr. Lutz get fired. And then I started looking into the illegality of it. And people started contacting me organically. And uh, so we now got a huge coalition. There are over 30 members on our steering committee. We've got four work groups. Wow. We've only been meeting for a week and a half, and uh, it's a very, very active group. The Just from the, the sort of more like slacktivist things that you see kind of shooting around the web, like the little, the, the petition to have Amelia Clark fired, which got like close to 10,000 likes. It seems like there's a lot of interest right now in, you know, the public health in Spokane and what's going on with, with this controversy around Dr. Lutz. So it's, it's cool to see that that's also translated into more active activism, <laughs> like people actually taking steps to form committees and, and push the, push the ball forward. So maybe we could just start with like, just briefly, cause I think this has been all I've talked about on Ray on the newsletter for a while. So I think most people that are going to listen to this podcast know about it, but maybe from your perspective, former city council president, now private citizen, what, <laughs> when you, when you were starting to hear about this unfolding, what was, what were the parts of it that were just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Well, just from like a logistical point of view, I read about it in the morning and I looked up the state law while I was getting ready to watch up. As a a legislator does, goes like, wait, is this really the law? Is this possibly right? Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't. It said that the board of health had to meet and in public, uh, fire Dr. Lutz. And so there should have been a public hearing. And then they stood up at this press conference the next day at 11 AM. And I've seen a lot of press conferences in my time. I participated in them and I I've never seen anything like that. That was just a absolute nightmare of a press conference. Like if I were to give a press conference like that for anybody I'm working for in the past 30 years, I would have been fired. Yeah. And when I was just off the top of my head and so fill in any that I might be forgetting, it was like, 
Amelia Clark, the administrator of the health department, didn't seem to know her own bylaws. The reporters were quoting in real time the bylaws back to her about how to, you know, properly terminating employees like this. So it didn't, it went against the bylaws of the organization. It went against state law. There was also this, from my perspective as a journalist and a person who works with words, what seemed to me like a pretty deliberate, they might've known this was coming or something, or were sort of, you know, tripping over themselves in real time to say like, we, we didn't fire him. We asked for his resignation. It didn't come out until later that they like took his keys and locked him out of the building. Okay, so just real quickly, if you haven't been obsessively digesting every moment of this controversy the way I have, I can see how you could feel a little lost during this portion of the conversation. Like, you guys are obsessing about the minutia of how somebody got fired. What's the big deal? We get there a little bit later, but I also want to just like explain it up front so you're not confused for the next 10 minutes while we're talking about this. Okay, so what we're talking about here is two specific things that appear to violate state law. And it's kind of like an either or situation, like they either broke one law or they broke a different law. The two laws are this. There's the open meetings law that say you can't have sort of big, important decision making meetings behind closed doors out of the sight of the public if you're a, if you're an elected body. So when the health board went into executive session to talk to Amelia Clark about whether she wanted to terminate Bob Lutz, if they would have said, yeah, go ahead and fire Bob Lutz in that executive session, that would be... A violation of the open meetings law. The, on the other hand, Amelia Clark does not have the power to unilaterally fire Bob Lutz. Only the board can fire Bob Lutz. So if they did not tell her in executive session that it was okay for her to fire Bob Lutz, that means she was unilaterally in violation of a different law or a different policy or the bylaws of the organization. I think it was actually, there's several levels to that. She was in violation of all that stuff. The third thing that I'm just thinking of off the top of my head now as I'm riffing on this was the, one of the very specific parts of the health law, the health code, is you're not allowed to interrupt the work of a health officer or health administrator. So the idea here, there is if you fired Bob Lutz and locked him out of the office, as Amelia Clark appears to have done, then you have interfered in the work of a health officer. So she might actually have broken the state health law in basically taking his keys and locking him out of his email and locking him out of the building. So that's what we're talking about here. Several laws and probably the bylaws of the local jurisdiction being violated. And again, kind of either one or the other. Either you violated the Open Records Act or you illegally terminated Bob Lutz. I know it's confusing. I had to draw a diagram myself. The big takeaway though, no matter which way this pans out, somebody really screwed up. Okay, back to it. It was like, we're asking for your, we're asking for your resignation, but don't come into work tomorrow. That feels like a termination to me. Well, I think any reasonable person, when they take your keys away and I, they didn't just say, we're asking you to resign by 4 PM tomorrow there. They said, we're asking you to resign by 4 PM or you're fired. Yeah. And th those words were spoken in that meeting. Wow, and, right. and, you know, when they stood up in that press conference, they used very specific language in the press conference. Like we decided and, you know, I, I transcribed parts of that press conference and both uh, Mayor Wick from Spokane Valley and Amelia Clark, the health administrator, said very specifically, we had the go ahead after that meeting, which was an executive session. So quite frankly, they may have, by revealing what happened in executive session, one, they stated very clearly they broke the open public meetings law. They backed off of that the next day um, after they figured out they may have broken the open public meeting law. <laughs> when in the in, when in the press conference, the reporters were like, "Isn't there an open public meetings law that you guys have maybe just broken?" <laughs> and they admitted, "We decided, we asked him to resign." And then it, you know, you have board members that said there was never a vote taken and there was no decision. I talked to one board member that said the only decision that was made was is that they would counsel Dr. Lutz, right. but according to Dr. Lutz, there was no counseling involved. There was, you're going to have to resign was the first thing they told him in the meeting. So what you're saying is in the hearing, so Dr. Lutz is going and probably in the lawsuit that he's going to be filing against the county, he's going to, because the only thing that I heard in that sub, the, the actual subsequent hearing that was, you know, ostensibly legal, that was public, Amelia Clark said, I went some, this is a paraphrase said, I went in there to try to counsel him, but he was so, his body language was so bad and he was basically in such a bad mood. I just said, I want, I'm, I want to fire you or I want, you know, I want your resignation. So Lutz is even saying that that's not true. Right. Dr. Lutz has said, you know, he has tough conversations with people all the time. All the superintendents wrote a letter of support, even though he had to have really tough conversations about shutting down schools with them. And they didn't go in and have a conversation. And then the conversation after a half an hour 
ended poorly. They went in with the intention, which is really like the political motives behind it that became really clear when they finally had a public hearing uh, a week later. I think like a whole theme that just keeps going through my head since this has happened is accountability. You know, it's either either you broke the law and illegally fired him or you violated the Open Public's Meeting Act. It's an either or situation. It's both of those can't not be true. So when people violate one law or another, necessarily there has to be accountability. And that's why I think over the years in Spokane, you see people get outraged about things and then it really dies down. You forget like that that happened, that I guess every four or five years you have something very controversial happen and then nobody's ever held accountable. And so people, we've seen this at a national level. If you let people off the hook and don't hold them accountable, then it's okay for somebody else to break the law next. And we don't have hold them accountable either. And just to be clear for the, with the little catch 22 that they got themselves in, what you're saying is if Amelia Clark unilaterally fired Lutz, that's, she doesn't have the power to do that. That's an illegal firing by state law. If the board agreed with her to fire him in closed session and executive session, that's violating a different law, which says you can't fire public officials in behind closed doors. You have to deal with them in open meeting. So either way, no matter way this shakes out, a law was probably almost definitely broken. And that's kind of what is going on here. Just to be clear. Yeah. So either way, a law was broken. And then they went and had a meeting the following Thursday to fire him and hold that hearing and do it publicly. But that still doesn't change the fact that they acted illegally the previous week. And that's where you can't just call the public hearing a remedy. A remedy is is punishment for illegal activity. We have to hold people accountable or they continue to break the law. Like I, I sometimes checking my own sort of feelings about this because I would much rather have a, a, a public health official who's effective and that even if he's like kind of. He called himself a curmudgeon. I've heard people call him an asshole, even if he's an asshole, but he's effective, especially during a once in a century crisis. I would rather have that guy stay in his job. I'm stating my bias. Even despite that, I've tried to sort of feel like, am I am I giving sort of fair view to like Amelia Clark's feelings about, you know, not being able to control a subordinate? And maybe I'm not. And maybe it's like we need to get over petty, petty workplace grievances when, you know, there's a literally once in a century pandemic happening. But it also brings to this like who's in charge question that, that I'm really, really fascinated to talk about, because effectively, even though Bob Lutz is the face, he's the Dr. Fauci of Spokane County. He's the guy that writes the op eds whenever it's like, hey, we've whether it's fluoride or whether it's, you know, stuff about the pandemic or it's something on some other matter of public health. He's the guy. He's the face. He's the voice. But Amelia is technically his boss, which is a really strange that's a that's to me seems like a really strange thing. It's not like the press secretary is, you know, Trump's boss, you know. Right. Or at City Hall, the city administrator is not the boss of the mayor. Right. And I think like the mayor is the front point, but the city administrator is administrating all the staff below it. Yeah. And those organizational manager type of duties. And you would never have the mayor answer to the city administrator. And so it doesn't make sense. No. And I was on the board of health for four years. And during my four years um, serving, Dr. McCullough was the health officer and health administrator. Right. And those Joel McCullough. Yes. Yeah. And there were similar tensions with the board and Dr. McCullough, but there was never somebody else inside the agency over Dr. McCullough. And so the board itself, when it switched and split the position, they really created their own mess that they're lying in now. And that's why a lot of them, I believe, voted to terminate Dr. Lutz is because they couldn't honestly take a look at this is their problem that they created structurally by how they did the hierarchy. And then it ended up inevitably, if you have a face of an agency during a pandemic, which we've never seen anything like it. And Dr. Lutz is constantly the one in front of the cameras, the one talking to the press, the one dealing with hospitals, the one dealing with superintendents. And then you've created that tension because the boss, the administrator, nobody knew who she was. When this all came down, you know, I've been dealing all year long on the fluoride issue with the health district. And I never met Amelia, but I talked to Dr. Lutz many times. And so you've created your own tension. And then I think elected officials and board members have a hard time saying, wow, we created this problem. 
And instead, they're just scapegoating and firing Dr. Lutz for a creation of their own. So the controversy itself, is there anything else we've missed that we want to talk about that's pertinent to facts or just the ongoing litigation and then like looking further out, change potential changes to state law and stuff that would maybe remedy this in the future? Yeah, I think we could talk about longer term and shorter term changes, but I think as Like factually speaking, we've put ourselves in a mess. And I think it's fair to point out that Dr. Velasquez is a nice guy. I've served on the university district board with him, but in no way, shape or manner or form um, is he qualified to be the health officer right now. Well, and he's also and I've served on a board with him, too, full disclosure. And I do think he's a nice guy. And I think every time we've talked, it was the symphony board. And every time we were talking about public health in those in, in, in an unofficial, just he's a doctor capacity, he was always erring on the side of safety. Like every like he was never he's not a reopen guy. I don't believe that. But he's also not a public health guy. He's just a, he's an MD and he's worked mostly in the corporate sector. Um, one thing that I do want to just make very, very clear, because I think it's probably the most important single thing, like structural thing that we're going to talk about here is that the county board of health. Unlike the state board of health, which is mostly professionals, the county boards of health and our county board of health specifically is almost all elected officials. So it's you've got three, the, all three county commissioners get to be on it and they get to appoint three people to represent the county. So that's six spots. There are three, three city council people from Spokane get to be on or three representatives of Spokane. The mayor can be on it, but it's usually city council people, I think. Right. Yep. And then it's what else? It's it's like two Valley City Council and one small town representative, which currently is uh, the mayor of Millwood, Kevin Freeman. Okay, cool. So that's basically that's 12 people, nine of whom are always elected officials, three of whom might be medical professionals, but also might not be. Because the the other thing that I, when I was looking up the state law or the bylaws for the the local health board. Sorry. And this is if this is this is my <laughs> I might need to like write a diagram for people who are listening at home. But so the bylaws that actually govern the Spokane Regional Health District say it's three people from the county. It's three people from the city of Spokane. It's X, Y, Z. They, they govern the electeds very closely. But when the, with those appointed positions, they literally just say it's not even clear to me based on the letter that you have to live in Spokane County to be part of the Spokane Regional Health District Board. And it definitely doesn't say you have to be a, a like a physician of any sort or any sort of medical professional. No, there's an anti-vaxxer on there now that doesn't believe in vaccines. So one of the three citizens doesn't believe in one of the tenants of public health. Right. And so, and he was also, he spoke at one of the reopen rallies in May. Yes. With the, that guy from the Valley. Yeah. Who, um, who will remain nameless. Yeah. We're not saying his name. He doesn't deserve it. <laughs> no. So you have anti-vaccination appointees and then you have a group of politicians and really it's, it's unfortunate Um, that it's like this, but it is because, and fascinatingly, we can, majority of the funding used to come from the motor vehicle excise tax. And so that was a majority of your health district's funding. Right. Uh, But I think it was 19 years ago, Tim Iman, I think it was his first initiative to repeal the MVET tax. And once that got passed, so thanks Tim Iman for causing this problem, (laughs) it's serious. And then, so now the majority funder of the health district is the county. And so they hold a lot of cards. And so it allows them to really threaten and use that money as a lever to either say to the city or the valley, if you want to keep your seats on the Board of Health, then, you know, you have to do X, Y or Z. And basically it lets them have free reign. Or when I was on the um, health board, Dr. McCullough brought forward to our executive team um, a resolution on oil and coal trains just expressing concern because coal dust or exploding oil trains is would affect public health quite severely. And I remember one of the County commissioners stayed afterwards and I heard the next day that we were not going to be considering that resolution because the County commissioner, um, thank you, Shelly O'Quinn, um, said to Dr. McCullough that we'll just make the health department, the health district, a department of the County, and disband the Board of Health if you keep doing things like this that are political. And to me, it's like, this is like a bigger example of how we buy the very nature of the county being the largest funder and having these threats and politicians in control. Or you can even go back further to 2009 when Dr. Kim Thorburn was let go. And that one, 
there's still people I know that didn't vote for Mary Verner for mayor um, both times she ran just because of what happened under Dr. Thornburn, never forgave her for her vote. So you've constantly got public health in the crossfire. And I think it's just become so much nationwide. It's an issue with the masks and the shutdowns that we see it here locally. And that's why it's got legs, I think, is because people are really fed up with that. So let's maybe use the coal train thing because it's kind of like it's not the political hot button issue, but it, it could maybe like serve as an example of what we're talking about here. So on a board that's 75 percent politicians that's dealing with public health when the health officer, because here's the other thing you could say, oh, well, there's no proof. Controversy is that the coal trains are drive through town uncovered. They're literally just they're sprayed with some sort of solvent and they're just like there's no covering on them or anything. So, the, you know, thousands of miles, there's they're just there's coal dust getting kicked up all along that rail line in Spokane. The railway obviously goes right down between Pacific and First Avenue in the heart of our downtown. And, and with oil trains, obviously, oil explodes because, uh, you know, the basic physical properties of petroleum. So Joel McCullough said, hey, this is a health, serious health risk that is under my purview as the health officer. I want to write something about this and say I would like to throw the weight of the health department behind trying to get coal train, you know, divert coal trains somewhere else. Don't drive them through the middle of downtown Spokane. Is that right? Yeah, and I don't even think it was like trying to divert them. It was just saying this is an issue. And it was actually calling for if they were going to increase the amount of coal or oil coming through Spokane to do an environmental impact statement. So it wasn't even taking a position of we don't want it. It was taking a position of please look at the environmental impact. Let's study this scientifically. Yeah, let's actually look at the process the government has to do an EIS. And so, and I guess I personally went down when this was controversial and I went down to the Spokane river under and walked the underneath the tall bridge, um, down, uh, by Highbridge park. And so I used to carry around a bag of coal that I found. So it's, it's not just, Oh, theoretically it could dust off. No, no, we found coal and I used to carry it and I'd sit in a Senator's office back in Washington, DC when I'd meet with them. And I'd pull out my baggie of coal and say, this was found right on the banks of the Spokane River. So it's, it's, it's real. It happens. I sat through a tabletop exercise on what would happen in Spokane. And this was with the Spokane police, the county sheriffs, all the different departments around the city. And the tabletop exercise was what happens if on the west end of downtown, a oil train derails and blows up. And basically by the end of the three-hour tabletop exercise, everybody's hands were up in the air. And we're like, yeah, we're, there's not really things we can do. Right. So it's, it's like a real threat, but then you've got politicians that don't want to talk about it. And, you know, I'd sit in meetings, I'd get called into meetings with BNSF and the other rail lines, and they're fairly intimidating people. They fly them out from DC and you sit in a room with 10 high powered executives from BNSF and the threats are real. And, uh, but then that shouldn't, whether the health district weighs in, whether it's a health concern or not, right. is utterly ridiculous. So in a, in a more of an ideal scenario, if it was if the tables were turned and it was like 75 percent uh, health officials sitting on this board and considering whether or not to do this resolution, uh, asking for an environmental impact study for coal trains, you could imagine the conversation would be more around whether or not this is a legitimate use of public health. Right. From more of a scientific or at least a professional perspective, not a. Uh, oh, I'm this might bother my constituents or my donors or whatever, you know, uh, more of a political concern. It would be more about like, oh, actually, no, this actually doesn't feel like public health to me or it is. You're right. They would be more of at least if not free of human failing and or free of human opinion, it would at least be a different playing field around. Is this the purview of public health or not? Right. Yeah. Just be a cleaner conversation about the real issues. Yeah. Instead of just purely politics. Right. And so the, the legislation to to basically empower counties and therefore county commissioners to create these health districts was, I think, first written in 1967, 50 years ago plus. We've never had a pandemic in the, in the time between now and then. We've never, you know, what was there? There was HIV was a huge public health crisis and obviously things like, you know, drug addiction and stuff like that. These are big public health crises, but nothing that's like worldwide. And I don't know if we should ever feel blessed 
by COVID, but this, it really sort of shows on the one hand, how important a robust and uh, empowered public health system is. And, and like, a, you know, I'm not a big fan of hierarchy in general, but here's a place where I really want the experts helping us all make decisions about our own individual behaviors, but then like whether our kids go to school or not. Right. And, and now this sort of decision to fire the health officer in the middle of the, not just the middle of this pandemic, but when it's really, we're really seeing what people were worried about at the beginning of this thing is now actually happening in terms of the cases are skyrocketing. So that seems, that's a, that's a massive problem. I think it's a, it's a huge issue. And I guess it's just not just public health. It's the fact that a huge deal was made earlier this year when the Board of Health voted to really consider racism a public health issue. And that was a huge step. And it got a lot of positive press for both the uh, Regional Health District Administration and for the Board of Health for taking that stance. And then they turn around and one of the reasons they gave to fire Dr. Lutz was that he attended a Black Lives Matter protest. Like how just the hypocrisy is so astounding. Like you want good press because we recognize racism is a public health issue. And you go on record saying that, and then you turn around and use an actual movement to affect systemic racism. And, you know, and we've seen COVID very directly impact communities like our Marshallese community and our indigenous population and the members of our African-American population in all communities of color at a higher rate in Spokane. And those are, that's nationwide statistics, but it's also happening in Spokane at a higher proportion. So health problems are in, intricately tied to racism, yet we want to then tell the health officer that he can't go attend a, a protest. And, you know, and he even was standing in the back and he was masked up and socially distanced. I've seen pictures of that rally. And then the person that is complaining that, like trying to take it away from being a, a anti-racist movement and saying, well, no, it was because you were at a public gathering. And then it turns out there's pictures all over the internet of Commissioner French attending the, what was it called? The free freedom. Yeah. The, what was it? The, basically the reopen Spokane. Rally yeah. Reopen May. Spokane rally with that Matt shade jerk. And they attended that rally, but Al French was there, not masked up, and then has the gall to complain that Dr. Lutz went to a Black Lives Matter protest. It's just, it's so astounding. Creme 2 was interviewing Commissioner French, and they'd turned the camera off, but the mic was still live. And he started talking about how we have to open back up. So it's like, it's not even, they can't even keep the quiet part, like the real reason they're doing it. They can't even keep it quiet anymore. On the day of... An hour before the Board of Health met, Nadine Woodward, the mayor, put out a letter that was just immorally disgusting and repugnant, saying it's the best news she'd heard. But she gave that to the city council members an hour before the Board of Health actually met to fire him. So it's like taunting everybody that, look, I know what's going to happen at that Board of Health meeting, and I'm glad about it. And here you are an hour before you even go vote. And so the hearing, like, they can't keep the quiet parts that you want. You wonder if people, like, what are their motives, right? They can't even keep it quiet. They, like, say the quiet parts out loud, and it's just shocking, shockingly immoral that we're in this position. One of the other things, and then I think we, I want to get into what, what facts is working on and, and sort of what we're going to do moving forward. But one of the, an ex, another example of that that was just so galling to me, that this was a canned hunt, it was a setup from the beginning, is that as they were considering at the very end to uh, whether or not to appoint Dr. Velasquez as the interim, and he only works like five hours a week or something, I've heard. He's not, he's very, very part-time. He's not a full-time employee. But he's funny in those press conferences. Ha ha ha. But he, the city council member, the Spokane city council members start raising concerns that we're just going to um, appoint an interim health officer that nobody's ever heard of before. Commissioner Al French says, Administrator Clark, did you have an opportunity to talk to Dr. Uh, Velasquez about this? And Betsy Wilkerson's like, I've never even heard this guy's name before. And Brian Beggs is like, I don't know enough about this guy's background. So to me, that said, just clearly that Al French and whoever else was on, you know, team Al French here was like, we're going to fire this guy. We know we have to have an interim health officer because that first press conference, one of the big questions was, was like, who's the health officer, if not Dr. Lutz? And they didn't have an answer. So they learned that lesson. They decided on this guy, had Amelia Clark go meet with him. And then they sort of rammed it through at this board meeting where, where part of the, the people that voted no, not to 
fired Dr. Lutz, had never even had met this guy, didn't know that he was the person that was going to be uh, put up for nomination. Right. Nobody else on that board knew what was happening until Al had already had it arranged well before the meeting. But then there was the article that came out like a week later where Dr. Velasquez was saying, well, I never knew. He just told me he wanted a favor. And you don't tell Al French no when he needs a favor. So I thought I was just going to be helping out with the health district. And right. and then they appointed me the health officer. And then Al's comments were, no, no, I told him he was going to be the health officer. And then it turns out, and I'll just say this, and I have my own bias. We all know that. But I got a... I got an email from somebody and then it showed up in the paper a couple days later that Dr. Velasco has paid for the catering at Nadine Woodward's inauguration party after she won the mayor's election. And to me, there's all sorts of dirty stuff and just disgusting. So let's maybe talk about some state law changes we can make. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. So facts. What do you what are you guys working on or what are the what are the sort of like short term and long term goals of this organization or it's not even really an organization. It's more of a committee that you're putting together and it's, it's just a coalition. Okay. We got a lot of varied members. We got members of our impacted communities. We've got doctors. Um, we've got former state board of health, um, members, medical ethicists, medical ethicists from Gonzaga. And, um, there's people that can't be named that are participating just because of their public positions. But there are also, you know, there's like 38 people that have participated in meetings so far. Um, so it's a really wide breadth of people that want to be intricately involved for hours every week. And we're really looking at long-term change. So that's like the RCWs that govern um, health officers and govern local boards of health. And then we want to be able to react. Um, and we can talk about one of those situations in a minute. Um, when health, public health issues do arise locally um, and respond to those um, so that we're not trying to organize after the fact. And then we also want to hold people accountable. And I think that's my big word for the day is just filing complaints. Right now I'm researching um, the State Board of Health, the Department of Ethics at the state. There's like seven different agencies I think we can file um, complaints. State Board of Health is doing an investigation already. Um, but their investigation is really, did Amelia Clark violate the law or not? And then what are the ramifications for that? So there needs to be a wider look at misuse of public funds by the Board of Health. They still have millions of dollars of CARES Act funding that should be going to public health issues. And they're going to end up not spending it. And that's completely immoral when people are going to be out in the streets when the eviction moratorium ends. You're going to have massive um, evictions and they refuse to spend any of that $90 million on rental assistance. Um, there's all sorts of avenues, I think, for complaints. But on the RCW, we've been working with Representative Riccelli's taking the ball and run with it. That's Marcus Riccelli, who's a state. He's a representative from District 3, right? Which is mostly right. downtown. And I think he's majority whip, too, in the state House of Representatives. So he's up in the leadership position. And if you followed his career, he does a lot around food security when he's not in the legislature, he works at Chaz. Um, so he's very, they're just opening a dental clinic that he was really the driver to get all of the funding from the city and the state to open the dental clinic at uh, the Martin Luther King Community Center. And that just opened up, but it is a huge deal uh, because that community center and neighborhood is the one area that didn't have a dental clinic. But so he's really focused on public health. So when this broke, um, him and I were talking quite a bit and he's been working um, with members of our steering committee on what the state law changes. Initially, you just need to make sure you have health experts and you don't have more politicians than you do people that understand public health on the board of health. You also need to make sure the censorship issue gets cleaned up in the state law because the health officer needs to be able to speak about public health issues. And, you know, they muzzled him on a editorial before they fired him. They're trying to tell us that one of the reasons he got fired was for attending a protest that was around racism, which they admit was a public health issue. So you need to really clean up the censorship of the health officer and they need to have a free hand to talk about public health issues. And another bizarre one, he sent an email about studying gun violence to Senator Billig, who's the Senate Majority Leader, and to Representative Riccelli. And they that was one of their complaints against him, that he sent an email to our legislators about a study on a public health issue. Like, just sit on that for a minute and think, 
How you could get in trouble as the health officer for sending an email to the legislature about a public health issue. Right. And we should be clear about this, though, because this isn't like a, a Second Amendment issue here when it comes to guns. Right. It's not that kind of a question. The, the, the thing that is a, the matter of public health that's a concern is do we need sorts of regulations to keep guns out of the hands of children or teenagers who one of the things we know about the the public health impacts of guns meaning like when they kill people is it's so much easier to follow through on thoughts of suicide when you have easy access to a gun right like there's it's it's just so much more final, so much more immediate. That's where public health officials have stepped in. And this is not this is not controversial within the world of public health, that like gun violence, it's not even person to person gun violence. Well, it is that, but it's also self-inflicted. Gun violence is a massive, massive driver of death in this country. And anything that drives death is a public health concern. And that's not controversial. Our domestic violence rates are sky high in Spokane, and they're much more likely to end in the murder of the victim guns involved, especially after you've had an arrest and you go back home. Yeah, I just think it's okay to study these issues and see how we could prevent death. And there are a lot of people who commit suicide. It's just a tragedy. And it's more likely to happen when a gun is in the house. This wasn't like a public op-ed. This was an email to legislators ask, urging them to to look into this, to study it. That's That was another reason they wanted to fire him. So you yeah, the two main RCW changes, and I know the committee, though, there's a separate committee, and there were like 10 people on a meeting yesterday, so they're going to come up with a list of... Sorry, a legislative committee? Yeah, so there's a legislative, our, our steering committee for facts, and then there's a whole legislative committee, and I think they're probably changing from just looking at the RCWs. And I'm realizing we've been talking about RCWs for like 20 minutes without defining the term. So the RCW is the Revised Code of Washington. So whenever you hear the letters RCW, they're talking about changes to the state law. And the state law that governs everything from like, you know, murder and burglary to these health laws that we're talking about. It's basically all of the codes, the laws that govern Washington state. So with that in mind, let's back it up for a second. Take it from the top. They're probably changing from just looking at the RCWs to really how are they going to affect big public policy? Because we've got a county commission that's going from three county commissioners to five. And that starts this year with the remapping process starts next year. They form the committee and then they'll start looking at all the census data and form those districts. And I think that the facts will be very involved in uh, who's running for county commissioner and how those maps are drawn and making sure that we have county commissioners that understand public health because each one of them needs to be held accountable. And I hope it takes it to whenever the next election is in two years. Um, Commissioner French, if he runs again, I hope that somebody runs against him that holds his feet to the fire every single day on how this was handled and how he missed prior to the meeting where Dr. Lutz was fired and I thought this got kind of brushed over in the press. He missed 22 meetings of the Board of Health in a row. And then to come in and read a letter from Ozzy and act like he's controlling the room when he's missed the last 22 board meetings is just astonishing. How often do they meet? Once a month. Okay, so you, that's like probably multiple him. years of missed meetings. Yeah, and I'm sure they take like sometimes boards like that'll take December off in August or something. So he missed over two years worth of board meeting, had never attended. I mean, like, I'm just trying to remember the board meeting or the boards that I've been on. Like almost every, it's almost like boilerplate board rules that like, if you miss three meetings, you're just out. They just right. kick you out. Yeah. And that should be in the bylaws locally, or it should be in the state law as well. You just shouldn't be allowed to sit on a board that you missed two years worth of meetings. Right. And so you only come to the important meetings where you want to like, you know, throw your political weight around, but everyone, the rest of them you miss. Right. So, okay. So it sounds like what FACTS is working on is like a very broad, taking the broadest possible approach to all the potential remedies, both short term and long term, including electoral stuff, legislative stuff, kind of recognizing probably that we might not ever get to the perfect version of a what a what a health district board would look like because it's going to, you know, at the legislative level, even with a relatively progressive state legislature, there's going to be compromises that get made. And it, so. So that means elections really do matter, right? If we like we may be able to put some fixes in and some stopgap measures and we may be able to find some file, some complaints that actually equal changes and punishment holding people accountable. But 
it's still going to take in the end public remembering this. And I think that's one of the other things we're going to really try to do is keep this alive and make sure people do remember as long as we possibly can keep meeting and keep people interested. But as I said at the start, things in Spokane, you'll, people will be outraged about something and then they forget. And our goal is to really keep that outrage. I'm right now, I'm going through uh, all the public comments that the Board of Health got and I'm reading all of them and there's 5,000 pages. And it's great. I've never saw anything like that on my eight years in city council. I didn't get that many contacts about an issue. Entire groups of 100 Gonzaga professors signing on to a letter. There are every superintendent in Spokane County signed on to a letter. Is this the, the comment from this? Is this coming from the state meeting or from the local meeting? This is a local meeting. Okay. Well. I don't know how many comments State Board of Health got, but locally, 5,000 comments is something you just don't see as an elected official regionally with that many people. And the number of people, like if I'm on Facebook and I comment about it and then the media calls me and I do an interview and then I start getting flooded that night with emails from people that want to help and want to do something. And so what we're also keeping an eye on besides filing complaints, holding people accountable, besides changing state law, looking at electoral maps and politics, we're really kind of taking a look locally about public health and what does that nexus have to do with other issues in our community. And I think I mentioned this to you yesterday, but we've had isolation facilities in Spokane. And the way CARES Act dollars work is the regional health district goes to the county and that's that $90 million in CARES Act dollars. And they go to the county and they get money for isolation facilities. So Catholic Charities has an isolation facility. Um, there was the fairgrounds was an isolation facility. So that's for people that are homeless and are homeless shelters, or if you're living, living with your parents and you get exposed to COVID and you need to go and you don't want to expose your parents, you'd go to an isolation facility. And so those have been funded through the regional health district who got those cares dollars from the County. And up until now, um, homeless shelters, somebody comes into a homeless shelter and either test positive or gets their temperature taken and they are showing signs or symptoms, they get sent to an isolation facility. And there's a document, Dr. Lutz sent it out in late October, outlining why you have isolation facilities and why they need to be separate. But last week it came up that um, the health district leadership approached the city and said, we're gonna stop funding isolation facilities. And all the homeless shelters now have to create their own isolation facility Inside the homeless shelter. Inside already overcrowded homeless, homeless shelter. shelters because we don't have enough homeless shelters either. Right. And so what happened last Thursday was there were 10 people that either tested positive or were exhibiting symptoms at the House of Charity. So in order to create, and mind you, the House of Charity is the only one with large enough facility to even create an isolation facility on site. So they went and took 35 single women that were staying in the women's portion of the House of Charity and removed them and said, you got to go find somewhere else to stay tonight because we're, we're creating an isolation facility on site. Um, so those 35 women had to figure it out. There's in, in, During winter too, right. right? So that's the other thing. And so like Fax is looking at this going, okay, the test is, is it public health related? Is it deal with inequities in our society? And Clearly, the most vulnerable that are living on our street are seeing a disproportionate impact, health impact on this decision. It is public health because you know what's going to happen. So you're a shelter, say you're Hope House and you've got a capacity of 30 women and you're full and a woman shows up and House of Charity's already gotten rid of all the women in theirs. And so where do they go? They go to the hospital. And so now you're going to be turning people away if you have an outbreak and if you have an outbreak and you don't have room to create an isolation facility, you're going to send them to the hospital. And city staff was having a conversation with the regional health district leadership about this. And staff asked them, "What? Uh, how's a shelter staff who's making minimum wage, $13.50, $13 an hour, that has no training in medical training, how are they supposed to take care of a COVID positive patient on site in this isolation facility? The regional health district leadership said, you know, a lot of those staff members have already tested positive for COVID, so they're immune and can just deal with them. Like, think of the humanity of saying that. We don't know how long you're immune for, one. There have been cases of people catching it twice. 
and they have no expertise or training on caring for COVID. So to me, the loss of Dr. Lutz is completely highlighted by this situation. And so I think you'll hear from the Facts Coalition probably within a week We'll be trying to really break this story wide open on the isolation facilities. And I just hope like if we act fast enough, maybe we can embarrass them enough that they reverse their decision and fund isolation facilities, because that's what we'll be asking the health district and the county commissioners to fund and pay for. And they're cutting all the funding for these isolation facilities. So somehow a shelter that we know the shelters are completely underfunded. It's just like factual. They don't have enough money to operate shelters now. They're supposed to create separate isolation facilities on site with no money and with no extra staff. Meanwhile, the county's sitting with all this CARES Act money they, they probably yeah. aren't going to be able to spend. And they can't even, nobody can answer my questions lately, which is how much is left? Is it $9 million? Is it $20 million? And you can't, from the documents that have been made public, piece together how much of that $90 million they've spent. It's just immoral. It's disgusting. And this is a direct impact of Dr. Lutz being fired. We can see that right now in Spokane in that instance. It's it's such a sort of grotesque sleight of hand to say when the question is, how can these staff that aren't trained to take care of people with this medical condition, what are they supposed to do? And your answer is, well, they've probably already had coronavirus anyway. So just like throw them back into the wood chipper, you know? So not, it's like, you're just saying like, oh, they're just warm bodies that are trying, that are like going to just like, you know, deal with this for us as opposed to saying like, oh no, they don't have proper training. So they shouldn't, whether or not they've had COVID, they shouldn't be, you know, we should have trained professionals going in so they can, you know, understand the proper precautions that need to be taken when you are, in deliberate close contact with somebody who has this disease, right? They're, you know, like that's the frontline workers we've all been talking about, those healthcare workers. Like they they have been trained to protect themselves in a way that, you know, rank and file people haven't. It's awful. Awful. <sighs> well, so we've kind of already broached the subject of uh, housing. This might become another range two-parter, y'all. And it is. Thank you so much, Ben Stuckert, for coming on the show and telling us about facts. We'll get to part two, which focuses on housing soon. I want to give another big shout out to Brennan Pointer and Speak Studios in downtown Spokane, Washington for recording this episode and helping clean up the, uh, I still edited like a psycho, like I always do, but really, really helped with the uh, initial post-production and the recording. So Speak Studios, everybody. Yeah, I kind of had a little Trump vibe. Speak Studios, they're great folks. Except they really are. But in the meantime, check the show notes for how to get involved with facts with a PH, P-H-A-C-T-S, uh, and help ensure that the proper pressure is being kept on the health department and our state legislators to change these laws, you know, so that our public health isn't ruled by petty tyrants and oligarchs. That's all we're looking for. More sober professionals, fewer tantrum-throwing babies. Let's make it happen, Spokane. Bye. Bye.